Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. This is the word of the Lord for you today. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my out of excuse me, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us the words of life yet again. You have spoken them to us so many times in this pulpit, in the faithful preaching of your word, for the various men you have called to preach. We ask that you would speak yet again, that we might hear from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Our kitchen is not a large kitchen. I'm sorry, it's the best illustration I've got today. Our kitchen is not a large kitchen, and uh, we did have, for those of you that didn't hear, we did have a leak in the pipe directly behind the fridge. Now, it wasn't a large leak. It was actually a rather small leak and a rather slow leak. In fact, actually so slow and so small that the plumber uh, took a fairly lengthy time to try to even figure out where it was. 
Now that we could see the vast majority of the water damage where once he found it, you know, the, the big spot kind of in the kitchen, it's maybe a circular spot about six feet in diameter. And there was a spot on one of the sides of the cabinets, maybe, I don't know, 12 inches by 12 inches and a, a piece of baseboard and a little spot on the wall, maybe two feet by two feet. Well, this week they called the water whisperer, and that's why they call him uh, that or the water witch, one of the two. I love both terms. But he comes in with his fancy-dancy little handy-dandy little tool and is like, I will find all of the water in your house. And it's interesting because as I'm standing there, and I'm the worst kind of homeowner, I guess, uh, I'm the curious one. And so I just love to ask questions. I'm going to watch him do everything because I want to learn. And he, he brings out this tool with two little metal prongs on the end of it. And he says, I will find the water in your house. And I'm like, brother, it's kind of obvious. Like, it's right there. You rub your toe, water comes out of the floor. It's pretty clear it's there. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, there's two categories in my mind. There's water damaged and there's not water damaged. And they're pretty obvious. And you know what? I was actually really wrong. Over the next, I don't know, five hours as he dismantles my house, the water has not stayed in the kitchen. It's made it all the way into the laundry room behind the wash and dryer up against the wall. It's actually made it all the way out the dining room. It stopped when it hit the carpet to our living room. What I thought was a six-foot square is more kind of like 15 by like 22. I find out tomorrow if they take it down to the studs or if they just kind of do cabinets and floors and everything else. It's amazing. But the funny thing is, is as I'm sitting there surveying the room, it's abundantly clear to me. I see water and I see not water. I see water damage and non-water damage. And there's two categories and they're very visible on the surface. But by the end of the day, I actually realize there's a third category. There's a category of things that look right on the surface, but aren't right underneath. In fact, he takes his handy little tool and he touches it to my slab. And the humidity percentage in my slab is 80% water. Well, that's less than ideal. Time for the dehumidifier to show up. You see, that third category of product, of the it looks fine on the surface, but it's rotten underneath is the story today. Jesus interacts with that kind of person, that caliber of person, the person that who on the surface seems to have it right, but only when you dig underneath find out that they have it wrong. You see, verse 31 helps us, it clues us into the caliber of person that we're talking about. So Jesus said to the Jews who had hated him, rejected him, tried to, no, who had believed in him. This is the group of people that are like, yeah, we dig this Jesus guy. He's a pretty cool cat. We kind of like him. I'm all right listening to what he has to say. He's an all right dude. Yes, that, that was my paraphrase. That's not actually what they actually said. They've intellectually agreed with kind of the content of what he said. And the interesting thing is that Jesus, as he interacts with them, is abundantly clear. They're not Christians. At the end of it, he gets to the point where he says uh, they're of the devil himself. Well, okay, fair enough. That's, I guess, not on the same side. But it introduces this category of person that's so important for us to understand, so important for us to realize, to, to kind of have framed in our mind of the person who intellectually is comfortable with the words of Jesus but yet 
is not a Christian. A person who intellectually is comfortable with the content, but has not yet been transformed. Now, we in reform circles uh, certainly have this category well laid out for us in our history, but it's, I would say, probably the emotionally the most difficult for us to kind of come to terms with because of how much we emphasize education and intellectual thought, and rightfully so. We should. The way to the heart is certainly through the mind, but it doesn't stop in the mind. In fact, actually, if we're going to be honest, the the kind of part that he's describing here is a position that's very similar to the demons themselves. They intellectually comprehend who Jesus is. They intellectually believe in him, yet it has not impacted their life beneath the surface. They're rotten. They're evil. They're vile. They are my laminate floor in the dining room. Looks so pleasant broken underneath. It's this category of person that Jesus is addressing as he kind of works through what does real Christianity, what does real faith, what does real belief in him look like? And the first principle that we're going to see, we're going to look at a number of them today, but the first one is that true faith, biblical faith, God-given faith, this redeeming Christian faith is more than intellectual stimulation. It's more than just an intellectual kind of captivation, stimulation, and intellectual belief. So Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, what does he say? All right, you've got to figure it out. You're listening to the right guy. Good on you. You actually believe what I'm saying. Right on. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's interesting, as he's talking to a category of person that already believes in him, he doesn't say, you made it, good job. Well done, box checked, you're out of hell forever, you're good to go. No, 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 actually, your intellectual assent to this conversation is important, but it's not enough. That's not enough to to fit the right category, to get onto the winning side. In fact, actually, there's something deeper abiding in my word, this transformative, this, this remaking living in Christ. Now, this is the kind of language that we don't really use very often, abiding. I remember growing up in the church, and I think out of all of the vocabulary words in the entirety of the Scripture, I think this is the one that has made the least sense to me throughout the entirety of my life. You know, abiding, it's related to aboding, living in. You know, honestly, have your house get torn apart and you kind of really quickly what it means to, you understand kind of emotively what it means to abide somewhere. Right? Right now we're kind of a family without a home. We're staying at Dick and Lou's house. They're very gracious in that regard. But like all of our stuff, where do we put it? All of our dishes are now in the living room. Our whole house is turned inside out. All the furniture from the living room is in Llewellyn's room. Everything's getting ready to go into Boston's room. Everything is all turned upside down and inside out. We don't, we don't have home right now. We don't have a place where we're kind of grounded, where we feel solid, where we emotively connect to. This is the place where I belong. This is the place where I live. This is me. It's amazing how many of those little kind of pithy, catchy phrases we have, the cliches in American culture, to try to 
capture that idea. Home is where the heart is. I don't really do sentiment well. I'm so sorry I tried. That's the best I've got. But you see, we're trying, we're trying to get at that idea of that there's something more than just staying at a place. There's this idea of that this has become a, a part of me. This is where I reside. This is where I rest. This is where I'm grounded. Go on a really long trip and then try to remember that feeling of when you first see your bed. <laughs> My bed! I'm home. Christ is, is painting a kind of similar portrait of uh, being residing in a place, finding home in a place, finding grounding and rootedness, finding life and lifestyle in a place. And it's interesting, what is the place in which he gives it? It's not your intellectual realm. It's not your intellectual ascent. It is in Christ and in his word. Abide in my word. Abide in Christ. Then you're truly my disciples. You, you're transformed. You're remade. It's, you are new creatures. And it's interesting. True faith is more than intellectual stimulation. And it's going to have more content, more reward than simple forgiveness. True faith is more than intellectual stimulation. True faith is more rewarding than simple forgiveness. Look at what Christ says to this. You're abiding in my word. You're truly my disciples. And then what are the consequences of being his disciples? Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Part of this being remade, part of this being transformed, part of this being turned from the inside out. Is that we have the truth and we are set free. Now again, I've been in this portion of Scripture, kind of, again, hammering on this American idea of Christianity that we have gotten, which is this idea that Christianity or my faith exists simply for my relationship with hell. Namely, I don't want to go there, and so therefore I have to have this thing. I really kind of more or less, I need, you know, I have homeowner's insurance from a kitchen. I have, you know, eternal life insurance in Christianity. That is really a crass way to look at it, but so many of us, this is the type of Christianity that we were taught as a child, that it simply just preserves me from an eternal torment. And we miss a bigger and larger portrait of what Christianity is. It's, it's not just this intellectual box that we check. It's not just something that shapes how I think it is that, but it should be more than that. It's freedom and truth. And it's interesting, the Jews, they get what Jesus is saying. Again, he's speaking their language. He's speaking the language of the Old Testament and the Judaism. They get it. And so they chime in with, I think, one of the more comical sentences they've said in a while. Most of what they say here is a bit kind of goofy, but this one I find to be just the most delightfully ironic. Thinking they're chiming in and kind of agreeing with him of sorts, they say, look, <laughs> verse 33, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Really? Have you read your Old Testament? I mean, like, have you read any of it? Like, any of the history books at all? Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Medes, 
Persians, actually Rome right now. Like as you're talking, you're actually slaves as we speak. And part of that is because they are again recognizing Jesus isn't talking simply about physical freedom. He's talking about spiritual freedom, and they chime in with that and say, "We look, Jesus, we get it. We, we presume we've got both of these things. We're Jews. We have truth, and we have freedom, ironically, since we've never really had freedom. But we've got it. And Jesus, in essence, kind of gives them an answer, starting in verse 34. And we're going to look at this kind of as the framework for the rest of the passage. Jesus says, hey, you want to see what true faith looks like, more than intellectual stimulation. You want to see what true faith looks like. It's more rewarding than simple forgiveness. Well, let's have a let's see. Let, let's see if you actually do. Let's look at your life. Let's look at how you behave. Let's look at how you think. Let's look at you, Jews, and let's actually see. Do you actually have that? Is your faith something that just is kind of this mental checklist to you? Or is it the robust and rich biblical spirituality that Jesus has given Let's see. Let's see if your faith is that life-altering, true faith of Christ. And he gives kind of three categories right away to look at to say, all right, am I simply mimicking the demons? Am I simply that laminate floor that looks good on the surface and has soaking water underneath? Or am I demonstrating robust biblical Christianity? Three things. Let's see what they are. First, True faith is life-altering in that it, is a, uh, it, it frees you from uh, slavery to sin. That was a hard sentence to say. Verse 34, Jesus answered them. Look, I, I get it. You think that you've been freed. You think you've never been slaved. All right, whatever. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so he, he explains, look, what is the nature of reality in the world is sinners are slaves by definition. In fact, actually, if you wanted to look at the larger biblical portrait, people are created for slavery. They're all created. All people are created for slavery, either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, but we're designed to be slaves to something. And he explains here this starting point for the human condition. You are slaves to sin. And the tragedy that follows from that relationship to see how the Proverbs describes it, a dog returning to vomit, as an addict returning to the things that are killing them, as a person who's broken and constantly returning to the things that do them harm. And how many times have we seen this just out and about in the world with someone that maybe we know and we love and we see them making catastrophic and destructive decisions over and over and over and over and over again. And though they hate that very decision, they find themselves going back to it over and over and over again. You want to just kind of shake them. Stop it. Stop returning to the things that are breaking you and killing you and ruining you from the inside. Stop. The damage. But if we were really going to be you know, judgmental and pretend that we didn't have similar tendencies in our own heart, it wouldn't go very well, would it, for us? We look at our own souls and we see that trajectory, that trajectory to return to evil things, knowing that they do not satisfy. 
You maybe remember as a kid, depending on which holiday it was, maybe. Maybe it was Halloween. Maybe it was Easter. But it was the holiday that in your home represented the most candy. (laughs) You may remember that most of us at some point in that candy consumption cycle had the one day where we were like, I will eat it all now. (laughs) And the next day, what do you think about that decision? (laughs) Filled with unbelievable regret. Oh, I feel terrible. And yet, interestingly, the next time that holiday runs around, what do you do? The very same thing. The entire chocolate bunny, one sitting. And I don't feel good. True faith is to break sinners out of that relationship with sin where we don't have to return to it. We don't have to return to it. We don't have to go back to those ways. We don't have to immediately resort to our old habits, to our old brokenness, to our old evil. We've been freed. We have freedom to do what is right and what is good and what is true. And I think maybe sometimes we in the church do not spend enough time talking about this element of Christianity. We talk about Christian liberty, and usually what we mean by Christian liberty, wrongfully so, is to see how close to sin I can come before I actually do it. That's wrong. Christian liberty, by definition, is it's the ability, the freedom to do the right thing and to find joy in doing it. To think about what that means, that when you come to know Christ for the first time in your life, you have the freedom to do the right thing for the right reason and find joy and reward in doing it. Do you realize all of the lost people around us, all the lost people in our families and in our friends and in our workplaces don't have that option The only option they have is a dog returning to vomit over and over and over and over again. And no wonder they're miserable. If that was my life, I would be miserable and so would you. But interestingly, this transformative faith of Christ doesn't just stop with slavery and freedom from slavery to sin. He continues, verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. He, he now he's kind of hiding, highlighting a second element. He's mixing his metaphors, really, to say, all right, first element of this transformative faith is you're freed from slavery to sin. But the second element is that you've been transformed from being a slave to being an adopted child. And you know what? The slave actually enjoys the blessings of the home for a time. I mean, you think about that. It makes total sense. They, they get to come in the home, and if they're working inside, they get all of the air conditioning for the day, and they may be able to eat from the master's food, and they get to enjoy the master's music in the home and the, you know, the delightfulness of the house. But at the end of the day, what does the slave do? They return to their own home, which has none of those things. They return to their closet or shed or whatever it is in this culture. It wasn't very good. But after a period of time, that slave may be sold or whatever else in this time and lose all of the rights and the privileges of the master's house that they enjoyed for a season. In fact, actually, the one thing that you were guaranteed as a slave in this era is that you would not be in your master's house forever. It was guaranteed you could take it to the bank. You, you did not have the right and the privilege to stay there. It's the difference between you know, my house and your house. 
I can come visit you in your house, but there is a point where I have to go home. Now, you may have to figure out how to ask me that delicately, but there is a point in which I have to go home. I have been known to stay too long. That's the point here is that the slave can stay in the master's home for a time, but there's a point they have to leave, they have to go, they don't get to stay anymore. It's not their right, their privilege. However, a child in this time got to stay in the, in the parent's home indefinitely is what the point Jesus is making. They have the rights and the privileges of the family of God. They get to enjoy them forever. And to think about how a transformative this is for how we think about ourselves. To think about our personal identity. No longer do I identify myself as this tragically flawed individual that's constantly returning like a dog to vomit, constantly returning to the evil things that I've done, constantly returning to the ways that are destroying me. No, instead, I'm a child. And when I'm in God's presence, I'm where I belong. Can you think about that for a second? When you go before the Lord as his child, it's where you're supposed to be. It's where you belong. Do I want my kids like out playing on the street right now? No, I want them with me. I want them in my presence. I love them. I want that they belong with me. They belong in my presence and I in theirs. You see how this will transform just the way in which we think about ourselves. We exist in a culture that's telling our children that they're cosmic accidents over and over and over and over again and being mystified that they've lost any sense of meaning and identity as a generation. And here you have the scripture saying, look, you're a child of God. You belong in his house forever. When you come in through these doors, welcome home. This is where you have all the rights and the privileges to be because you're in his house. You belong in his house. You'll be in his house forever. And when you go to glory, you'll just join with more saints in a bigger house. We belong to him. That's life altering, isn't it? How we think about ourselves, how we think about each other, how we think about the ministry of the church. You hear us pray it all the time as the elders when we pray these things. We pray that the Lord would grow the numbers of this church. Why? Not because bigger is better. I don't need to put on 250 pounds just because bigger is better. That would be bad for my body. I need to, we want to grow so the family grows. So the house of God grows. So that the children of God grow. So that when we come in, we have more family members to spend time with, to delight in, to enjoy. So that it's more of that great and happy family reunion without the weird family reunion element connected to it. Okay, maybe a little bit of the weird family reunion element. But no, 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 I'm just kidding. And that's a pretty impressive transformative element to faith that we're freed from sin. We are made to be children in the master's house with all the rights and the privileges that are attached to that. We may wander around and enjoy all the delights of the various rooms in the house. You think about that's really amazing. A slave, when they exist in the house, they're only allowed to go where they're told to go and do what they're allowed, you know, told to do. Children really get the run of the mill and it's fun. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't stop there. He's explaining this in 
even turns to this idea of fathership, explains a little bit more clearly in verse 38. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You're not what you've with your father. And the Jews again. Abraham is our father. Jesus, no. No, he's really not. He's really not. And here's why he's really not your father. Because if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. And Abraham didn't try to kill the people who spoke to him from God. He entertained them. He fed them. He took care of them. He didn't try to kill them. And you're trying to kill this one. So you're obviously not from Abraham. But he's going to build a larger principle in the latter part of this paragraph, which is kind of the third element that we're going to look at of this true transforming Christian faith is that uh, true faith is going to behave like its father. You think about it, it, what we're talking about is all people are made to be slaves, either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. All people are, in some ways, exist in God's house, in his world in some form or fashion. Likewise, all, all people are designed, created, and constructed to behave similarly to their father. And we understand this element quite clearly with children. I mean, you can tell not just from the appearance in many cases, but from the behavior and the vocabulary, and the interests, and the activities that children want to be like their parents. And a large part of that is because mom and dad provide the clearest definitions of what boys and girls actually are. You want to ask my children what boys and girls look like, what they act like, what they are like, what their definition is going to be like is going to reflect what they see us, Nikki and I, to be. That's how children operate. It's why those that have tremendous brokenness at a really early age have such a difficult time overcoming it. Because it's not just that it it hurts them when they're little, but it changes their definitions. It changes how they see what everything is supposed to be, and it's hard to get over that. It can be overcome, certainly, but it is long-lasting and difficult. Jesus here says, look, you are behaving just like your father. (laughs) verse 41 you're doing what your father did now they they gather that he said that they don't belong to abraham they've cleverly picked up on that they have however missed the point of what that meant and so they come back with this this great retort in verse 41 we're not born of sexual immorality abraham didn't cheat we're obviously jewish you're missing the point man we belong to you know we belong to the jews and jesus like no 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 You're trying to identify your spirituality by proximity. (laughs) You're trying to say, I'm spiritual because I'm in the proximity of spiritual people. I'm I'm near spiritual people. And instead, you're missing the point. You behave just like your father. And as he continues, verses 42 through 47, your father is the devil. You Jews here, you are behaving as your father behaves the devil. He is a murderer, verse 44. He is a liar. The truth is not in him. He is the father of lies. And these Jews are anticipating murder. They're plotting murder. They're scheming murder. And they are being filled with lies. And the lies that they're telling, interestingly here, are lies of saying that they are good people. They're saying the lie of 